What's up, people? Do you ever wake up feeling wheezy? Can't breathe? Got some phlegm in the throat? Those lungs are feeling a little damaged? Walk up the steps? Gotta take a couple gasps? Well, guess what? My lungs, they're not great. Alright, some days I can wake up, do a few sprints, run a mile, no problem. Some days, can't carry the laundry up the steps. Dude, my lungs are dirty. They've been through some stuff. They're criminals, frankly. Over the last few years, not the last few years, the years before the last few years, man. My lungs are still recovering from the damage I put those babies through. There are over 2,000 lung transplants every year. 2,000 people go into the operating room, they get a new lung put in. Only 55% of those transplants are effective after five years. One day, my airbags, these lungs, they might need to be replaced. And I'm not sure I like those odds. Well, I'm not concerned. Why, you might ask? It's not because I want to die. Nope. I want to live. Why am I not worried? Because of Dr. Joan Nichols. She is a professor of internal medicine and the associate director of the Galveston National Laboratory at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Earlier this year, her lung lab achieved monumental advancements. Uh, They were able to successfully transplant bioengineered lungs, which are lungs grown in the lab, into a pig and keep it alive. This is the future, people. Okay, Growing lungs in the lab. We don't need those 2,000 lung transplants a year that don't work well, if we can figure out a way to reliably make lab-grown lungs. And that's what Dr. Joan Nichols is, is, is out there trying to do, out in the Wild West of, of biology, trying to figure out how to make these lungs in a fish tank in the laboratory. Her and her colleague, Dr. Joaquin Cortiella, what a name that guy has. That's a, that's a nice name. That's almost Joaquin. Wait, maybe it is Joaquin. I think it's Joaquin. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about El Chapo, and he's Joaquin, I think. But this isn't Joaquin. This is Dr. Dr. Joaquin Cortiella, whom I hope to get on the podcast one day. Actually, I would like to have both of them on the podcast together. Maybe next year, or maybe later this year, as they, as they continue to get advancements. But they've been working in this field longer than I've been alive. And I hope that you enjoy their knowledge and our conversation. This is the State of the Universe with your host, the one and only Brendan Drackler. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, I get I get carried away. Joan Nichols is here. Uh, Joan, your work fascinates me, but I could never ever do it because aspects of biology really freak me out not blood right i'm not afraid of blood i know a lot of people are afraid of blood but what really gets me is veins veins freak me out to no end when i get done working out and i (laughs) and i look at my own i can't look at my own veins i have to walk around like ray charles for a half hour because i cannot look at my own veins they freak me out to no end uh, but I want to know uh, about the, the work you do. You're a bioengineer, and can you tell people the specific subset of that field you work in? So basically, 
my training is very different from the work that I do. And that happens to everybody um, over time. And when you do the type of work that I do, which is bioengineering tissues, it brings in things that are not biology that you wouldn't even realize. But so basically um, to do bioengineering work, you have to understand a little bit about chemistry, some physics, some real life, what really works, a little bit of um, mechanical ability is always helpful because you really are, the equipment we work with doesn't exist and very often we're making it ourselves and you have to have a really good sense of humor and a lot of tenacity and be very um, willing to keep plugging away at a problem for a long period of time without any results. Yeah, you have been working on, on you've been working in the lung lab, is that correct, for a long time? We well, so pretty much our lab has focused on lung, but that's not all that we do because I also use do a lot of modeling, mm -hmm. which means I look at making small pieces of tissue of human tissue, and I look at what happens as you grow, develop, and produce it. Um, and then I also do studies where I may expose it to pathogens or not, and look at what a response is to understand better how tissues survive assaults or injury and how they reconstruct themselves. I see. Can you explain to me how you bioengineer an organ? Sure. In, in one minute or less? Yeah, you can. You can take as long as you want. Okay. So how do you bioengineer an organ? First thing you start with is that you need a scaffold material, a skeleton, a structure that provides support that it helps if it's a little bit like the organ you might want to bioengineer especially if you're going to work with surgeons and medical staff who are used to doing transplantations and you want to move in that direction. So the first thing you need is a scaffold. The second thing you need is a source of cells that you're going to use, whether it's going to be stem cells or adult cells or, or in my case, lung-specific cell populations and blood vessel-specific populations. And I know they freak you out, but we're going to, we're going to talk <laughs> about it a little bit anyway because I kind of have to. That's okay. You have to have equipment to support development of this process of, of, that will allow you to grow the, the organ that you're producing in. And you need a recipe, and that really takes a long time to develop. Um, you need a recipe that you follow that says, I add this product on this day and do this and at this temperature, and then the next day you do something else and the next day. And for us, because it takes 30 days for, at this point for us to grow a lung, Every day over 30 days, there's a piece of that recipe that says I'm doing something. To produce an end product, just like you're baking a cake, my recipe lets me follow it. And every time we make a lung, that's as close to being the same as we can possibly make. I see. So in my mind, and I'm in no way active in this field, so forgive me if I say something stupid. I'm sure I will, actually. Uh, what I'm picturing is... Uh, when you when you're a, a baby, when you're growing in your mother's womb or, or a different animal... Um, you are essentially that cake and different parts of your body are being baked following a certain recipe. And what you're trying to do is recreate that recipe in the lab. Is that correct? Some, something like that. A little bit like what we see in during fetal development and a little bit like what we see during wound healing. Where, I mean, you realize now that you're already produced in your functional organism, but if you cut yourself, that cut heals. Okay? Mm -hmm. And if you injure something your your organ or your tissues will heal. And so bioengineering makes use of both some of the things that happen during fetal development and some of the things that happen just as you repair yourself regularly. I see. 
uh, I, I say it's fascinating. I said it's fascinating to me at the beginning because the idea of growing human parts or, or any parts in a lab is truly like a, something that... Now, I don't know how long this has been going on. I don't. Uh, I'm not familiar. But I feel like if you would have told me that people were doing this 10 years ago, I really would have been like, holy shit. Like, I'm amazed we were, by we that. Were doing this. We were starting to do this 10 years ago. Yeah, see, I figured that. And because I'm not yeah. active, I, I don't know. But that's what I'm saying. It feels so futuristic. It, it Well, uh, think about at the time when... When I first started um, producing small pieces of lung tissue and small pieces of blood vessels, you know, just growing them, like I said, as models uh, to study how tissues form and develop, I had no thought at that point to use it for something like growing a whole organ because that was so far out in science fiction that it's part of Star Trek and, you know, that whole concept of, of I'm, you know, of, of how you would repair somebody in 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 the future, mm-hmm. um, but you you also have to understand that there's a lot of creativity that happens, and that uh, about 15 years ago I met my now research partner, who's a clinician, who was interested in bioengineering tissues like trachea, and when he saw what I was doing with lung, when he came to my university, um, you know. He said, wow, you're making these nice quarter-sized pieces of lung tissue, and they're consistent, and they're really good-looking, which means they had all the parts you needed to have at, at that small functional level. He said, what would it take to make something big with a view towards being something that would be transplanted or clinical application? Yeah. How, how, I, I want to get to that eventually. I want to talk about the clinical application, but I don't want to jump into it because it it is fascinating. But I first want to talk about something I saw earlier this year. Um, I saw that you successfully transplanted lab-grown lungs into pigs and kept the pigs alive for the first time. Now, yep. um, interestingly, I saw that. I saw that on a, a science, one of the science websites I frequent. And I thought, man, I want to contact her and talk about this because this is very interesting to me. And I had thought that I emailed you. And I was like, damn it, she's not getting back to me. And I really want to talk to her about this. And like three weeks went by, like the entirety of August. And, uh, and I looked back and, and, it, and that, that was still in my drafts. And I'm like, yes, I still have a chance to get her on. So tell me about this, this pig, you're transplanting pig lungs into a pig. One of the things that, that people really freak out about is that, uh, you are in, animal testing is so, so hated in certain online communities, right? Yep. So in order to do the the pig lung transplant, you first have to get certain parts of the pig. Out. So you essentially have to kill a pig in order to, to transplant the, the lung back in. Is that, how does the whole process so work? We're, so we're better at that. And the reason that this has taken 15 years is that first we developed a method to produce the scaffold structures we need. And they're made from natural lungs, Mm -hmm. um, either human or pig in this case. Human ones we get because we're very fortunate to be part of a a, um, transplant group that if an organ can't be used for transplantation for people, it doesn't meet the, the stringent rules that they have, but it still has some viable cells in it. We're allowed to take that. We're allowed to get that organ and use it for research purposes if the donors or the donor's family allowed this. 
And so we would collect cells from it if this if the tissue had live cells, or we would if there were new, no live cells at all in it, and that happens occasionally with the, the, the organs very damaged, which is why it was rejected, we would make scaffolds out of it. And so that's taking the whole lung mm-hmm. and um, putting it in something that looks like a fish tank, because it is a fish tank, um, with a um, pumping system that lets me pump uh, a sugar solution mixed with a detergent solution through it to take away all of the blood, all of the cells, and just leave the skeleton proteins behind for the lung. And that makes a structure that looks like a lung, doesn't feel like a lung, um, but it looks like it. It has a gauzy feeling. Uh, it's very white looking because you just strip everything away and leave the proteins of the lung behind. Right. Yeah, I saw and pictures so of this. That's the scaffold. So that's so that for pig or human, we do it this way. For the pigs, we don't we don't kill pigs to produce them. Produce these scaffolds. We I can either go to a slaughterhouse um, mm-hmm. because we eat pigs. Yeah. I can occasionally go to a butcher shop and get them. Um, or, uh, from other studies that might be on campus from people doing other research work that they wouldn't use the lungs. And at the end of their study, I'm allowed to go and procure them. I see. Um, so, so that is an important thing for the listeners. Uh, what, what, what Joan just said, they do not kill pigs, uh, in the process of, of getting the lungs, right? That's not the no. goal. The, the goal That's is not, not goal. to harvest pig lungs for your own enjoyment, um, because a, a lot of people tend to have that misconception. I, I want to clear the air on that, uh, because there no, are we're, we're very careful about that. Yes, yes, and, and so well, we're fortunate that I for for the pig study, um, for, we got the lungs from a variety of sources. Like I said, I can even go to a, a slaughterhouse and collect them, and we produce them, but we test them very carefully once we produce these scaffolds to make sure there's no problem with the the lung itself we do studies just like we do to you we'd have you breathe in something and test your lung function mm-hmm. we test the function without breathing without without gas exchange or or, or uh, at that point but we test the ability of that scaffold to be structurally competent which means it's going to be all it's going to be strong enough to move a lot and not you know fall apart and it's going to be elastic enough that it'll support the fact that you breathe and, and like elasticity um, lets you like a rubber band, you know, decrease mm-hmm. your lung size and, and breathe again and do it all over again. So these scaffolds are made out of what are called collagen and elastin. Collagen is a very strong protein. Elastin is an elastic protein. And that's what these natural lung scaffolds are pretty much made out of. I see. Uh, maybe this is a more philosophic question, and maybe um, maybe you don't even want to or can't answer it. But why do you think that animal testing is such a hotly debated topic? You've been around the field for a long time. I'm sure you've heard a lot of viewpoints on it. Because what? I think it, it hits us at a very, very gut-wrenching level to think about having an animal that would be like a pet or an animal that you would come in contact with. It's very personal for people that they think that we're being unreasonable and we're not treating them well. And mm-hmm. we're not taking into account the fact that they're alive and we can't, we do not have the ability to make a live thing. Okay. So it, it is very personal. And I, 
I'm, I'm open about the fact that we, we do animal research because without this research, I can't just go from my laboratory making these lungs and doing the best that I can and not having a step in between before they would go to clinical application. Right. You wouldn't, if you needed an organ and you knew I could produce it, but I had never transplanted one yet, would you be the first one in line that said, test on me and take what I'm doing from the laboratory and put it right into you? Oh, certainly not. Unless, unless you're going to forgive my student loan debt in the process. Oh, honey, either way, <laughs> your student loan debt has been forgiven, okay? Yeah. No, because, I agree but, with but you, basically, though. basically, that's what we're talking about. And so any, any drug that you would get, any vaccine that we develop, any surgical procedure like this is required to be tested in at least two animal models by the Food and Drug Administration. Yes. I I think that a lot of the stigma that surrounds this, some of it is based in truth. The idea that animals aren't treated well is based in truth because of historical information. It might okay. not it it's it's not true anymore, right? Um, we have we have stringent control. So so let me tell you how strict our controls are. Please do. We have a we have a committee at my university that evaluates, and we do this for every different kind of research work you do. But in terms of animal work, we have a committee of people that are veterinarians, scientists that do animal studies, and people from the community that sit on this committee that review all of our animal use protocols. Every university has this. Companies have this, that, and these are the groups that oversee what you're doing. You have to have a well-defined protocol that, dis, that explains anything that could occur in your research study that might be cause pain to your animal or discomfort mm -hmm. or any problems along the way, um, and, and, and that's very reasonable. And you have to explain everything that you're doing, and if your protocol isn't good enough, and you aren't careful enough about how you've described what you're doing, or they don't, or the or the committee doesn't feel that you're doing a reasonable study. You don't get approved to do this work, so you don't get to do it. Right. Yeah. So for for our study, um, it took my research partner and I, I think a year to work on our our protocol, working with veterinarians and with the surgeon that we work with to come up with a plan that said this is a reasonable plan for doing this pilot study that would prove this was feasible and we couldn't guarantee ahead of time um, that the animals wouldn't have any problems with the bioengineered tissues because nobody had done this, but we had done our best to prove the tissues we created were as good as we could ever make, that we were going to follow careful rules and assess our animals very carefully after transplantation, before, during, and after transplantation, basically, to make sure that they received the care that they needed and that we were going to treat them like transplant patients, mm -hmm. not just pigs. Right. Um, because they were critical to us. And, and so it took a long time to meet all of the things that are, that that committee said, well, have you thought about this part? And have you considered, you know, what are you doing for how you're doing anesthesia? Who's the competent person and what are his credentials? And I had to prove credentialing for all of the people that worked in this, the clinical staff and the research staff. We had to go through careful credentialing to prove that we were what we said we were. And for my surgeon, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon and does this on people, and the anesthesiologist who does this as a transplant anesthesiologist, they all had to have their credentials carefully checked to make sure that they could prove that they were very good at what they did. And then our veterinarians had to work through the study and say they were going to support 
what the clinical staff was doing to make sure they understood what was different for a pig. I see. Why did you, we're going to get to the, to the, the pig, the actual details of the pig transplant in a minute, but I'm curious why, why did you choose a pig? A pig is big. It's not a rat. It's about the same, um, structure in the thoracic cavity and in the chest cavity that a person is. It's the same. Um, Really? Similar size, similar structures, enough for my surgeon who didn't know much about pigs at the time, but now knows a whole lot more that he was comfortable when he was doing surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and a pig is a, for us is a meat animal. They've been bred to grow quickly. Mm-hmm. And that meant if we did a transplant, our pig would continue to grow quickly and we could assess growth of that, of the transplanted organ in the animal. Yeah. I read recently, and, and I don't know if this is true, but that uh, the average pig in six months will grow to 240 pounds. Yes, and it I will. I was amazed by that. Yes, it I, will. I, 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 that, so, okay. So when I actually put that detail into perspective, it makes sense that you'd use a pig. Uh, because so that's you, why. Yeah. So you do, you do want it to, to sort of get the lung and, and, and grow very fast. But uh, is, there a de- is there a downside to that? Growing very fast? Is there a higher incidence of rejection not really no not really because whether you realize it or not um although pigs are meat animals and have bred bred to develop you know grow pretty quickly and develop um their organs um we do the same thing if you think about how small you were when you were a child and in a few years span you know you go from the size of a baby that would mean your lung is it is this tiny little structure you know a few inches long at mm-hmm. the most to something that's large enough where you're talking about 10 to 12 inches long, that's a lot of growth in a, in a, in a short period of time. So it's, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's really pretty good. It's worked out for us, but it's very similar to what we do. Right. Uh, what about the idea of using a cow? Could you use a cow for this sort of thing? Cows are kind of big. Yeah. Cows are difficult to do surgeries on. Um, Is that because they're big? Pigs are kind of the smaller pigs when we get them, and there are some breeds of pig that are very small, are manageable, mm-hmm. um, and they're easier to lift up. To okay, we lift okay. these animals up and put them on a table. We clean them down. I mean, we manage them very well, and it's easier if they're a little bit smaller. And our university can manage pigs, but it can't manage cows. I see. So there's yeah. another thought process there. I, I wasn't considering the the picking up of and maneuvering of the animal. Uh, but you don't you but but uh, but again and oddly enough a cow isn't shaped exactly the same as people and their um gi tract their their gut mm-hmm. because of their they are different enough that it would there would be some things obstacles for using that where pigs are really more like us i see i see enough for this study okay all right now we can i can stop asking you details i Describe to me the process of this uh, pig lung transplant. So you have the lung. It's growing in your fish tank. So the first thing you need to realize is that we we have a scaffold from an unrelated pig Mm -hmm. that we prepared over a couple-week period and have cleaned and prepared to do this study. On the day of – there's a two-step process to this. There are two surgeries our animals undergo. The first surgery is – um, where we go into the animal and we remo- remove one lung from that animal and leave them one lung behind. We remove the left lung, we leave the right lung. Um, just like us, animals can survive on one lung and we, and we take the lung out that we use and the animal, the surgical site is closed and they're allowed to go to recovery 
And the lung that we remove is used as a source of cells for us to reconstruct on a different scaffold a bioengineered lung. And there's a reason for this. A lot of my training is as an immunologist. And what that means is, is that I'm really interested in tissue rejection or tolerance to, to, to transplanted tissues. You realize that when somebody gets an organ transplant, they're immunosuppressed because that organ doesn't match their body totally perfectly. Right. So one of the questions we had for this study that nobody knew was if I took cells out of you and I grew them in a tank for a month and I produced a tissue or an organ and I put it back into you, would your body say, welcome home? It's nice to see you. Where have you been? Or is your body going to say, wait a minute? We don't recognize you anymore because small changes happen in the cells as you're growing them for a month in culture. Maybe your body would be sensitive enough to pick that up. We also weren't sure since it's an unrelated scaffold, although there's nothing that should drive a rejection response, whether we could produce these scaffolds in a way that was so clean, there was nothing left from the previous animal that would drive rejection. And so we weren't immunosuppressing our pigs. We wanted to see what that immune response was to their own cells. I see. And so the bioengineered lung, so we, we collect the cells. The scaffold is set up in a, a bioreactor, which is a fish tank, with tubes that run into the trachea and into the pulmonary artery and pulmonary vein because I need to pump nutrient fluids in it, and it's suspended in a tank of nutrient fluids that looks like Kool-Aid. Okay. Okay, for lack of any better description, it looks like red Kool-Aid. Fair enough. And, and I love Kool-Aid, but I don't think I would want to drink that It doesn't fluid. taste like red Kool-Aid. It tastes like salt. It's a salt solution. Okay. You don't want to know why I know it doesn't taste like I Kool-Aid. I do want to know why you know okay. it, how it tastes. Yes, at one point I, th- th- I tasted the media right out of a bottle years ago because I was curious to see what it tasted like myself. I see. Um, Hey, it's, I don't blame you. If I worked in a medical lab, I, I, you, no, I it's wouldn't. Round upon that we do anything like that, but um, it, there's a long story related as to why um, that it had to do with what was in the material and whether you could 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 it, different formulations could be sensed by somebody. It's a whole different research project. But let's come back to the fact that it's a salt nutrient solution, okay. and the, and the organ, the scaffold is sitting in this, fully immersed in it. And you then pump into this uh, scaffold on a regular basis certain cell types over a period of 30 days. And you provide other nutrient solutions. And we, you know, and then over that 30-day period, every day we add other something that's a nutrient solution or what we call growth factors. Growth factors are protein products that tell your cells to what to do, how to function. It's time for you to produce a tissue. It's time for you to grow and develop. It's time for you to to divide and proliferate and make other cells just like you. And these factors also help support where cells go to, um, where, where they stay, where they attach to the scaffold, and enhance that so that at the end of the 30 days, you have a bioengineered organ. And so then you have that organ at 30 days. We decant it, which means we take all the fluid away, and we do what's called breathing we we start pumping oxygen or air into those tissues in through the trachea just like you would breathe normally just like the first breath of an infant when they're born and we start that process in the laboratory as we and then we transfer that lung once we've done this for a little while and we've moved all the fluid out of the tissues that we could that lung gets transplanted 
get, gets transplanted in the animal, but we move from the laboratory to our surgical suite in our, in our animal center where this, the animal's already been prepared for surgery, and I hand off that organ to the transplant surgeon, and he puts it in place in the animal, just like he would be doing a, a regular transplant. I see. So, so let me make sure I got this straight. You, you, you take a pig. Well, first, all right. First, you have a scaffold, right? First, you, you have a scaffold. You take a pig. You take its left lung out. Why is it? What is it? Always the left? For us, for it's that? always the left. It's a little bit smaller. It's shaped a little bit differently. Um, it works for us to do a left sided. It also has to do with how the how the whole structure is formed. But trust me, left lung works for okay. us. Okay, you take the left lung and you use it to collect cells that you will then grow the new lung with. That yep. way you are creating, in essence, the exact same lung that you removed. Right. So you can put it back in and hopefully the pig's like, yes, my lung is back. It was just missing for a few days, but I got it back. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. okay. That's what we, exactly what you described is what we're after. Remember, this is a feasibility study to prove we can produce this, put it into an animal. We didn't want to immune suppress. We want to be able to assess it in any way possible. Is this bioengineered organ going to cause a problem for the animal? Is the immune system of that animal going to reject that organ? I see. Now, what were the results of doing that? The pigs lived, right? Pigs lived. Um, pigs did beautifully. The only problems we had with the study were from the initial surgery, which also happens in, in people occasionally. You develop what are called adhesions which means as you heal for after the surgery, you get a lot of overgrowth of tissue. And so we couldn't use two of the animals to, although we created a lung for them, we couldn't give it back to them. I see. So, so that was two of them, but the rest of the animals each received a lung and we survived them. They did not live for a length of time. We survived them and picked the times we had to euthanize them because we didn't know how the animal was doing other than assessing, did they have a fever? There was no coughing. The, their sound seemed to be good. When we took them and, and did um, x-rays and scans of them, everything looked good. But it, unless you really look at the tissue, you don't know what's happening. And since nobody had done this before, we chose 10 hours, two weeks, one month, and two months for survival time for the animals that we worked with. Okay. And, and that's exactly what we did. We survived the animal for 10 hours, two weeks, one month, two months, and then we looked at what the tissues, how they developed, how the blood vessels developed, how the, the tissues functioned, and we assessed very carefully what happened in the chest cavity, what happened in terms of, of you know, just uh, was there any fluid present, were there any problems for the animal, and it was, it, in that case, we didn't see any issues with our transplants. We also didn't see any signs of rejection. I see. So this is very much a proof of concept, right? This is a feasibility proof of concept. Yes. And so I, I want to, before we talk about applying this to human beings, I, I because we will get there, I want to first mention there's a lot of confusion, both within me and in the community online that I see. You What you're doing is bioengineering, which yes. is not the same as 3D printing organic materials. Oh, oh, yes, it is not exactly the same today, but in our future, instead of doing everything I just described to you, and I can start to see our future now, someday I will do a CT scan, which is a three-dimensional evaluation of your chest cavity, mm -hmm. and I, if you need a lung, and I will bioprint with cells 
and materials that are very much similar to collagen and elastin, I will bioprint you along and transplant it into you. I see. And that will be utilizing some of the information that you have gained by growing lungs in the lab, right? Because you, you learn fundamentally how these things work. Bet. So we learn so much. I mean, I have notebooks full and can show you notebooks full of questions that I have that say, you know, even before this project started, what are we looking for? What are we trying to assess? What are the things that nobody knows? Um, and so every time you do a project like this, you, you answer some of those questions, but you make a lot more questions about what could you do next? Where could this go to? Um, how are we doing the right process? Is the recipe good to influence how the cells attach and then, um, reproduce themselves and then form into tissues. I mean, all of that's going to be really important for the next stage of this process. And that will still be bioengineering when we do, when we do 3d printing of this, it'll just be a step up from what I'm doing today. Right. Okay. And you'll still need, will you still need the, you'll the lung cells? Yes. You will always need lung cells or a stem cell source that can be used to make lung cells. Okay, this is one thing I'm not quite clear on that I would like to be. Why do you need to remove the lung to get this? Could you get the cells without removing the lung? Not really, not enough of them. So so the reason, so so understand that we've been doing this with human tissues where we, when we got lungs that were viable, we took all the cells and we stored them away in a freezer every time we got human cells. And then our first project that we did that was published in 2016 actually was production of a pediatric sized lung. So we took a pediatric sized human scaffold and we repopulated it with cells and bioengineered a lung that way. But it wouldn't, it wasn't ready for transplantation, obviously. It was just done to, 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 for us to work out the procedures we needed to do. So once we learned what we needed to about working with human cells and working with human scaffolds, to take this to the next level, to, to do a feasibility study, it had to be pigs. So we had to do the exact same process, redesign it to fit pigs so that we could do this feasibility study. And then we will do what's called a preclinical study, which will be a larger number of animals. It'll work out everything that you need to know how the, the production is to make sure that every time we're producing a product that is the best product we can make. And then also standardize how it's managed for surgical transplantation. I see. Okay, now we can move in the direction of human beings. Uh, a lot of people, I, I, this is an odd question that I see online. And for me, I don't think it's a good question. Maybe you do think it's a good question. Because the question is, why are we testing this on pigs and not human beings? That's such a weird question to me, and I'll tell you why I think it's a weird question. Uh, I think it's a weird question because of what you said earlier. There's a lot of human beings that are not going to be willing to subject themselves to testing in that regard, Uh, to to knowing that, okay, you get a lung, you may may not live after you get this lung. I think that most humans, when asked the question, would you like to participate in this study, and we we will spare a pig's life, and we'll put you in the in the place of the pig. Mm-hmm. Most people, I feel like, would say no. And if they wouldn't say no, then they probably need to go through more psychiatric examinations. Uh, because I think that most reasonable people would say, no, I, I don't want to take the chance of dying uh, in case this doesn't work out. Do you think that that's what's going on? 
I think it's a I, I think it's a good question from my view, and here's why. First, you have to understand that there are people that are in desperate need of organs that. Um, that wait on transplant lists for long periods of times, and very often people even die waiting to receive an organ because we don't have enough. So there is a worldwide shortage of, and especially lungs, which lungs are very easily damaged, and um, even the process of procuring them, collecting them for organ donation and then transplantation, can sometimes damage the tissues because they're so delicate. I mean, we don't think about them as being delicate because we breathe a lot. We you breathe mm-hmm. constantly, and so do I. And the organ's very strong and heals itself over time. But it is also the actual cells that are involved in allowing you to, to let oxygen move through into your body are very thin-walled structured cells and very, very easy to damage. So that's why, in, in general, we have a problem. We don't have enough organs to go around. And the organs that we have, you know, we have to be very careful with and, and provide them to people that are that they're going to be a good fit for. But that's going to be the issue of why this kind of research work needs to happen. So why not going right into people? So let me tell you about this, what it takes to produce this that I've left out. Because I made this sound like, oh, this is a piece of cake. We go in the lab. We have this equipment that we threw together. By the way, we made this equipment ourselves. The tank is a, is a fish tank from, from one of the, you know, a pet store. Mm-hmm. The plumbing is from a hardware store, Lowe's, Home Depot, wherever I would go in and get it, it's plumbing fixtures. It's not meant for surgical use. It's not meant for to produce this kind of thing. It's what we can find to work with. The pumps we bought on eBay, they're, they're pumps that are, that are very good pumps, but they do have a failure rate. And, um, if a lung, if a pump fails, that means the tissue is going to die. Um, the system that we have, the chamber that we have is a good chamber, but it leaks. There are always problems with the pumps failing, the, the system clogging, so much so that I don't have this set up at this time so that I can look at home or to go on my phone and call up and use an app to collect, go in my lab and look at what's happening with the lung. I get up in the middle of the night, drive into the lab, park in front of the building, go inside, open the incubator door and look at the pumping system and make sure it's not leaking. There isn't a pool of media. The tissue's fine. We never failed to produce a lung for each of these animals that we had. But in the three years' time that we did this study, I think we pushed physically and mentally my whole research group harder than they've ever been pushed before. And I know I'm still recovering from this project because that's the physical side of going in and making sure this is as perfect as you can in an animal study. And although I love animals and I feel we must be responsible um, researchers when we use animals, it's not a person. I cannot imagine what I could do more other than sleep in my laboratory to monitor the production of an organ if it were going to go directly into a person. And you you do not know, even though you've done your best to produce it at this stage, I don't know how long this organ's going to survive and function properly. I don't know if it's going to continue to develop properly once it's been transplanted. That's why into pigs, into an animal model before it goes into you. Yeah. yeah, because I may not know you, but I care enough about you as an individual that there's got to be a step before that because I'm not going to deal emotionally with the fact that what if I didn't do this good enough and I fail you? You brought you up something brought- that I did not I- consider. Uh, yeah, the the toll it takes on you as a as a researcher knowing that. And- 
and my and my lab staff and it was stressful enough making sure that we had a the best lung we could make every time for the animal that was going to receive it and i and i will tell you for we didn't it doesn't mean we slacked off because these were pigs we gave this our entire effort as if it was for you because in our our minds our goal was to eventually do this for a what's called compassionate use eventually after we go through real preclinical testing we want to come to the point where the first time it's used for somebody, they have no choice other than to use these tissues to survive. Maybe a, a, a baby that's born in a, um, with a defect that doesn't allow their lungs to develop that would die unless we did something. That's what compassionate use is. No other choice but using these tissues. And so at least we would have to give that baby a chance using what we created. And that's not today. That's maybe 10 to 15 years from today. I see. That will be at the point we can do that. And so that'll be the first human implementation is people who need it or they're going to. There's no donor, right? For those people, there's no three-year-old lung donor. I'm not, I'm not even talking about three-year-old. I'm talking about three hours old. Okay. So there's, old. Right. So there's no, there's no one to donate those lungs. No. And so... Our only our only way to deal with that issue um, would be to use a procedure like this, and it would be again I can't even I can't even imagine that day um, because we are so involved emotionally when we're doing this for our pig studies to know that a baby's life is on the line would mean I think my whole lab would probably move into the the room with where we're doing all of this work to stay with it constantly to make sure that the tissues were what they should be at the end. Um, again, we have to work at making better equipment. I can't open a catalog. I can't go online and I can't order these things. Right. They don't exist. They exist in my brain and in, in other scientists' heads, but they don't exist in reality yet. And so we need to work at doing that, which means let's come back to the fact that I need to also work with companies or write grants that allow me to not only make these bioengineered tissues, but also make the equipment that we need to do that. Okay, so you think that uh, compassionate use, is that what you called it, compassionate use? Compassionate you, use. You think that compassionate use is about 10 years away. Is that correct? 10 years at least because although we, we had good results with this feasibility study, all it did was prove feasibility. Mm -hmm. Now we need to prove that the lung grows and develops, that the animals can survive, let's say, six months or more, and then when we bring them back and, and anesthetize them and we close off their normal lung function, which doesn't hurt them, we just let them breathe on the bioengineered lung, that the bioengineered lung will support them, and they can breathe and oxygenate just on that engineered tissue. I see. So How this study was survival of the tissue. The next one is prove that it can oxygenate. Okay. So how far away do you think you are from non-compassionate use, from actually using this on a, on a clinical scale? On a clinical scale? Oh, wow. So here's, the, here's what I, is the, I need to kind of explain this in a, in a way that makes sense. Although we're giving everything we can right now to do this type of work to, and learn everything we can at this stage, this is probably not what we're going to do with people on a routine basis. I think that as bioprinting and what I've talked to you about, about doing a CT scan of you and feeding that in, in a software that controls a bioprinter, I think that's developing alongside of my techniques 
So I'm wondering as if by 10, 15 years from now, those are going to be head to head and possibly come up to the same point where I'm going to say, I'm not going to use the techniques I'm using. I'm going to use all my, all my other knowledge to put into doing something that would be a bioprinted organ. I see. And I want to preface some, I want to, to add to something you just said, because I know a lot of people are going to misconstrue what you just said. Joan did not say that everything she's doing is useless and it won't be used one day. What she said was that this is a learning process, like all of science. And when you do science, the end result might not always be useful, but the end result in in most cases is not even the most beneficial part of the study. The most beneficial part of the study is the things you get along the way. Let me give you an actual example. When we went to the moon, we needed to devise a way to store power. There was no way to store power. You couldn't, you can't have an extension cord shooting out to your spaceship. That doesn't work. We needed to design a way to carry a lot of power in little battery packs. And what did we come up with? We came up with the model that eventually became the powered tool, the screw, the, the screw gun, if you will. And now the amount of money that that has made probably pays for the entire space race on both sides of the spectrum. And so the important part in my mind, and, and this is in a lot of engineering-based studies, the important part is not always the end result because sometimes the end result is not the thing you're actually seeking. What you're seeking is the knowledge you gain along the way. And the knowledge you gain along the way pays for itself tenfold. That's what she was saying. Did I... Did I you a, got it right there. I put a disclaimer. So, okay. So the person who created the wheel didn't see the cars that we have now driving down the street. They created a wheel. Right. I'm creating, I'm, I'm, the research work I'm doing is creating a wheel, but it's going to eventually lead to something so much bigger and better that I can just, if I sit and concentrate hard enough, I can envision where we're going. And that's almost like looking into the future. Yes. That's powerful. That's to be able to do that. That is something that more people need to sit down and do. To be able to sit down and envision where they're going with their lives or with their projects or whatever it is that they're doing, that is, that is very important. I think that is actually incredibly important to succeed in anything is you got to know where you're going. You have to have a good idea of the vision. And if you can sit down and you can picture where, where you're going in 10 years or 20 years, then I guarantee you, you probably are going to end up there. Because that is that is that is where revolutions happen is when you're able to sit down and you're able to picture vividly where you're going. Ask any world champion boxer or any any world champion football player what they were picturing when they were 15 years old, and they'll tell you they were vividly picturing the moment that they're standing on the turf at the end of the game with the Lombardi Trophy held high. They will tell you that, or with the world championship over their head. That is important for. There's a lot of scientists that walk around in the world not knowing what the hell they're doing. Or not having an aim in what in what they're studying, and they're just doing it because it's something to do, or because it, it provides them income. Joan, I admire what you just said. Have a vision for what you're doing, and be passionate about it. Because if you're not, then you're not going anywhere. And beyond having your passion, is the one thing I need to tell you that's really important for everybody, no matter what you do. Don't be afraid to make a mistake and fail. Over the 17 years of this project, if you push it back to the limits of when, you know, I first began some of this work, um, we failed, and my students hate me saying this, 
We failed to make a good vascular system in these tissues. We failed to get the lung tissue to, to, to um, function the way it should. We failed to make a good scaffold. We failed to come up with a really good process that didn't just totally destroy the lung and leave nothing left behind. We failed so many times that, you know, that's why I said being tenacious and being kind of stubborn helps you along the way, that you need to understand that you don't learn from your successes very much. You just sit back a minute and say, okay, I did that, it worked. You learn from your failures because they told me I wasn't doing this right. You had, and we had to stop a few years ago and say, okay, what we're doing, some of this is good and it's workable. What isn't working? What are we failing at too often to say that we're going to continue in that direction? And how do we look at this? And I have a great example of that. When we started developing these lungs, we thought of the lung as the lung tissue. That was what was important. We were making lung tissue. Let's make tissue. That's not true because I don't know if you think about the fact that what your lung looks like, it has a branching respiratory tree. Mm-hmm. So it looks like a little tree inside of each of your lungs is the airways. That's what the airways pretty much are. They're open airways and they branch off from one another. Along with that branching airway is a branching vascular tree. The blood vessels, the part that you said freaks you out. Yes. Um, but, but the blood vessels are really critical because the lung isn't just a bunch of lung cells. It's really made up of these tiny capillaries that run throughout and branching blood vessels that fill it. That's what supports gas exchange. So we had to stop and say, well, we're not doing this the right way. We need to switch our direction around and say, let's create a set of blood vessels that we grow lung tissue around. And when we started doing that, it worked. And the process kept getting better and better every time we did it. And we weren't transplanting these. We're just assessing these. But the process continued and continued to get better until we got the point where I was finally ready to say, Um, to my research partners that I think we're good enough now to go ahead and put this into an animal and do a feasibility study. And before this, we weren't good enough. And I was not willing to go ahead and and risk the life of an animal on something that I didn't feel was the best thing I could create. Yes. Yes. Something you said also also interests me. Uh, Learn from your failures. That's an important lesson as well. Uh, I had Francis Halls in on my podcast last week. He is the director or the the principal investigator behind Ice Cube. Are you familiar with Ice Cube? No, I'm not. What is it? It's a huge, it's a neutrino observatory. I don't know if you want to call it a telescope. Yes, I know what it is. As soon as you said it's a neutrino observatory. Yes, under the ice at the South Pole. Uh, yes. And he was, I had him on and he was talking about, uh, in fact, he'll probably, I don't want to say he'll probably, but he very well may win the Nobel Prize in physics this year. Or next, because of his discoveries, they earlier this year they had a monumental discovery where they were able to, for the first time, really accurately track the direction a neutrino came. Uh, I'm sure maybe you saw it in the news everywhere. Uh, so, an incredible finding. But one of the things that he was talking about when I was talking to him is that his team failed and failed and failed. In fact, they had so many catastrophic failures that they literally thought the project was going to end. And so I want to bring this up because this is important. Every scientist I talk to talks about the importance of failing. But here's the problem with failing in science is that the bureaucratic systems that govern who gets money don't value it as much as you do personally. So how do you sort of contend with that? Yes, you want to fail and you want to learn from your failures. But at the end of the day, the way you get money and the way that you're able to learn and continue to learn is by appeasing the bureaucratic powers and the bureaucratic powers want to see success. 
Oh, yes, they do. And so let's talk about funding a minute. And that funding is kind of the dirty word when, when we talk about research because funding is based on your successes. It truly is. And so we're hoping to leverage the, this, this paper that we've just published and the work in it to get funding for this project. This is high risk, high failure, you know, um, mm -hmm. high, high rate of failure work, um, low possibility of success work. And so we've been funded in the past to model along. Um, we've been funded in the past to assess lung function. We've never been funded to bioengineer the tissues that we, that unlike the proposal I'm going to be putting in in October of this year, which will be the first one we put in that says, you know, we, we really intend to bioengineer along. Now I'm not saying that we haven't in the past put in, in, um, grants to a number of federal agencies, um, describing this project, even before we showed feasibility, we did, but we were failing and, you know, the review committees were savvy enough to realize everybody was failing in the field. Um, why were we any different? We didn't show that we could do anything and therefore we never got funded for this work. So we raised money, um, a variety of ways. I had a small pilot project that supported most of this. Our other funds that were, um, not federal based funds from maybe my university, we had small grants from there. My, um, clinical partners get, uh, allotted a certain amount of money every year to pay for their credentialing and, and other things. They put in that money into the pot. I mean, we used any money we could get short of doing a bake sale to bring them to collect the money to be able to do this feasibility study. Um, and we did it with very little cost because the clinicians all donated their time. They took a vacation day when we did a surgery. I couldn't afford to pay them anyway. My uh, cardiothoracic surgeon on this project, Severo La Francesca, who's an amazing surgeon. He's just an amazing person as well. Um, he was in the area. He worked at a, a local hospital, but then he moved to Boston. He flew himself from Boston on his own dime to do these, these surgeries for us. So, you know, funding is, is difficult. And in this project, everybody, everybody that was involved in the project that was a, was an author on the manuscript absorbed, costs in whatever way they could or charge us the minimum amount it would be to, to do a process we needed to have done. Um, and, and just for reagents, not for time because people donated their time. That's how we got this project done, but it's not how this project should have been done. Um, I agree with being strict about spending federal dollars. I pay those federal dollars myself and my taxes, but there should be some way with you, to have some high risk projects that we do bother to fund to when the off chance that say one out of 10 of them makes it and you make an amazing discovery like this, that is just pushes the limits of what science is doing that we should have a way to fund, you know, the fact that absorb the failures and, and then recognize the single success you might get. Yes. yes. Well, science is incredibly underfunded to, to begin with in essentially every Avenue. And I think part of it is, is that there are a lot of projects that fail and the fail, the failure is what's sort of shown at the forefront instead of the, the information that you learned along the way. And the information that you learned along the way, I'd actually be interested for someone to sort of write a book about this, to look at all of the science failures over the years and to analyze the details of that failure or the details of the project and come up with 
an, an estimated amount of money that, that those findings have helped create, something like the screwdriver or something like the wheel, things that science creates in a time of failure, not in a time of success. And then someone eventually comes along and monetizes that failure and makes a lot of money off of it. So, so we don't publish our failures, you know, Correct. unless you are part of my research group or you're a collaborator of mine or I, I, or I don't reach you by, you, you know, you don't attend a talk that I do because I talk about failure when I give lectures mm -hmm. um, to any group that I speak to. I'm like, and I, and because it's important to understand that for research purposes that you're also funding me to fail occasionally, although I should be able to produce enough you know, if you give me money, I should be able to produce something that I can publish and would benefit to show you that I'm learning, like you said, that what I've learned along the way. And we try to do that. And and I have a stepwise approach to publications that show over the years, you know, we've done this little piece and here's our next little piece. Every single thing we do is important to this project, including a project that we were funded to do, oddly enough, where we sent these small pieces of lung tissue, the models we sent them to, low earth orbit I wanted to, yeah i was gonna i was gonna bring that up yeah so yeah sure and so believe it or not that project fits into this study in in a way i guess only a couple people that i know have ever caught that and turned to me and said hey that wasn't just something you did for fun was it um because it was a big project and it was a lot of work involved in it but last year in in august we sent uh, a project that ran for a month we sent a series of our small pieces of lung tissue um, that we developed up to the space station to low Earth orbit and microgravity to see what the effects of microgravity was on the tissue development for a reason. In low Earth orbit and in microgravity, um, cells don't touch each other the same way they do the, in your body. They're subjected to the same things. You see how the astronauts float around? Well, in a culture dish, cells are going to do something similar. They're not going to adhere the same way. They're going to react a little differently. And in low Earth orbit, cells proliferate. Let's say stem cells don't differentiate as well. And so they stay immature and they proliferate better. So that means I'm getting more of the immature cells that I need to produce normal tissue. They don't, they don't mature and form tissues as fast if they're in microgravity. So what does that mean for my project? The hardest part of our project, and you talk about the fact that we're collecting cells from one lung to make another lung with, or from someone's lung to grow a lung for somebody else in the future, is that we're still limited in what we know about how to get those cells to reproduce themselves perfectly. Not damaged, not in a way that's bad and leads to cancer, but perfect division and replication of cells fast enough for me to get enough of them to get them to, to produce an organ for somebody who might need it. On Earth, we've developed over the 10 years it took us to develop methods to entice the cells to grow and survive at a little bit faster rate than they would in your body when we're growing these, these um, tissues in, in a bioreactor tank. But they're still not fast enough. So that's why it takes 30 days. That's why the organs that we create have to be a little bit smaller right now. Um, and why when we created the pediatric lung that we did on the pediatric scaffold, we took all of the cells that we collected from an adult human lung to recreate that pediatric lung. It was very small because our methods of isolation aren't perfect. 
We damage the cells we want to collect most, which are the cells that are involved in gas exchange because they're so delicate. And so we're collecting progenitor cell populations and a few of the adult cells we want to have that support gas exchange. But we want to entice those cells to stay immature at first, produce a lot more of themselves, and then differentiate out and become the cells that support gas exchange. That's why sending the experiment to space was so critical to me. Because I learned some stuff there about tissue development, wound healing in space, and how these progenitor cells, which are a stem cell population, how they function. And that answered a bunch of questions so that the next time we do our, when we get funding to do our next round of feasibility studies, we're going to be better at what we do. And we might be able to entice the cells to reproduce themselves more and stay immature at the beginning to be able to do this in a faster way and maybe not take 30 days to grow along. Right. And it, it doesn't only help your group. Health physics or studying the, the health of astronauts or people oh, yeah. in like uh, divers even is very important. Uh, I listened to a talk a few years ago and I was completely unaware how important it was to understand the health of individuals on the space station or, or going to the moon or going to Mars. Because going to Mars. There, there is a lot of things that we rely on. That you, one thing we don't realize is how much we use gravity just for our functions, just for functioning our human for body. physiology, yes, yeah. for how your body functions. And so, so, in, so when you're in microgravity on the space station, you breathe differently. You breathe faster. You don't breathe as deeply. We don't. We didn't know anything about wound healing. We know there have been no major problems with people, but the the um, particle level. So just you know how on a bright sunny sunny day when you're sitting and you're daydreaming and you're staring at a at a shaft of light that comes into a room you're sitting in. How you see all those little particles floating in the air? Yes, that's the stuff you're breathing mm-hmm. on the space station or going to Mars. Even though you're very carefully cleaning filters, the particle level increases hugely. Skin cells that we shed, all kinds of stuff are in those particles. That's the stuff that you increase over time, and that's a burden for your lung. Causes some damage as you breathe, the more particles you breathe. And so that wounds your lung. So my whole experiment was looking at a lot of things. It also looked at wound healing of the lung to understand in long-term space flight what we might have to expect. See, so when I look in a in a ray of sunlight coming through the window, I see all those particles, but those particles sort of get cleaned up by the fact that I am going in and out of my house, by the fact that I open my windows. But on the space station, they don't because there is no windows. Is that the idea? And there's no windows. And even though they filter the air, it doesn't filter it all out. And by the way, I hate to tell you this, even though you open the windows of your house, that stuff that you see in that shaft of sunlight is what you breathe everywhere you go. Yes. Yes, I know. I... I have incredibly bad allergies when it comes to animals. and So you, and, now you realize that, that that stuff is not just on furniture and carpets. Yep. It's floating in the air. So if you go into an area where there's been an animal, there's hair and dust and dander and skin cells from that animal, and you're breathing that, and that's driving your allergy, that's what you breathe on a regular basis. Some of it is pathogenic bacteria, not much of it. Uh, maybe viruses occasionally that are aerosolized in the space if somebody else has been in your environment, but that's a whole other story for a whole other day. But bottom line, just the particles alone. And so because we breathe so much, and although your body has good mechanisms to clear that stuff out and remove it from your lung, um, 
those particles do get in there. And so that's part of thinking about this too. What's going to be long-term function for people? I learned so much about what would happen to these organs on Earth just by doing that one study we sent to space. I see. What is? Do you know the rate of rejection for lungs in the current way that we do transplants? So lungs have a high rejection rate in general. Um, they're really not sure why. There are a lot of reasons to go into about it. But you look, it's not rejection rate, it's survival. So you, the opposite thing is track. So within a, a reasonable length of time, let's say the first five years, um, about 70% of people we think, and that depends on the study, 70% of people are alive after five years. That drops significantly if you go out further in time, out beyond five years, that people's organ um, fails or, the, or they reject it, one or the other. Um, so that you have a problem that leads to loss of the organ and, and loss of that individual's life. So we're not great at doing lung transplants in general, but they have worked for us. They're not, it's not the same thing. And you need to think a little bit about the fact that a kidney or a heart doesn't see the outside world. Right. A lung does. And mm -hmm. one of the big problems with lung transplantation, um, is the fact that you do get infections. Um, and that leads to, you know, loss of that organ and loss of that individual. Um, you do get infections of the tissues because that lung is exposed to all that stuff we just talked about every day in terms of breathing. And beyond that, there is an actual microbiome. And so a microbiome is the organisms that live on us normally that are found on us and in us. The lung has a microbiome where the heart or the kidney, which is enclosed in our tissues, isn't going to have. So the lung is constantly exposed to the outer environment. I didn't even think of, I'm, that, that's crazy to even I didn't even think about that. The lung oh, is like a did. the lung is like a fifth limb and it's probably the dirtiest limb too because I've been in some horrible places. Some horrible horrible places. Sure you have. Everybody has. So so think about that for a minute. So one of the things that we did in this pilot study because we knew that the first time that animal breathed we're setting them up to get an infection and die is that we reconstituted the immune system of that lung. So we, remember I'm an immunologist by training, um, and you can thank University of Rochester in New York for, for part of that training because they started by, my, uh, my PhD work started there. Um, I learned to really respect what the immune response is in a way that said, I knew that we were in trouble if I didn't go back and think in terms of the cell types we were putting back into that lung if I wasn't giving a, an immune response back to those tissues, so the, immediately the first time the animal breathed, there was some protection against those things we talked about, not just the particles, but the pathogenic components that you might be breathing, the organisms that might make you sick. I see. Okay, I want to get into some, some questions. I, I have an, a new sort of segment that I want you to be my guinea pig for. Uh, the The idea is to take the public and get them engaged in your research because they comment on it, but they probably don't know much about it. In fact, most people that comment on research articles likely never have read the actual research. I I've saw an article recently. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you've seen this article. It was, a, it was a joke article. The article was published by some large uh, journalistic body, and it was that NASA found that marijuana has alien DNA. Have you seen this article? <laughs> no, I haven't. Okay, well, the article's a joke. And if you actually read the article, the article tells you that it's just a study. And the study is trying to understand 
how many people share bullshit articles without actually reading them. Yeah. And uh, it's a lot. Like, I think that their statistics were about over 80% of people shared the article but did not click the link, which is, is insane. And that happens for almost every news story, and news covering the work you do is no different. There's a lot of people that share and comment by just looking at the headline. So I want to bring up some of the questions that people have, some of the concerns that people have, and have you sort of answer their questions. Some of them are outlandish and stupid, and I know that you are bureaucratically correct, and so you will not be mean to anyone. But if you want, just give give me a little wink, and I'll be happy to call someone a dumbass for you. Uh, Because I am not as bureaucratically correct. Uh, And that might hurt me in my career, but I'm I'm okay. I'll accept that. But, uh, all right, so first question by by Joe. I'm not going to say last names because I don't want these people to get offended uh, if I do end up calling them a dumbass. We already know that they can clone our body parts using stem cells. And because it comes from our own bodies, there won't be any rejection. What do you have to say to Joe? Well, we're really not there yet, Joe. (laughs) <laughs> we really can't clone our body parts using stem cells. Um, stem cells, so stem cells are like cats. Stem cells can be um, gently coaxed to go in the direction you want them to go and maybe become the cell type you want them to be, but you can't make them do anything you want to. And they don't do it at large numbers. So we're not at that stage yet, then we're not cloning. Although the cloning, believe it or not, cloning a sheep in some ways after the um, embryo was transplanted into the animal and it just gestated in the animal and was born, it's a whole lot simpler at that point than what we're doing to bioengineer tissue. See, we, we've cloned sheep, right? Dolly the sheep. Dolly, that was in, the, was that in the Dolly 90s? The was, that Pardon? In the, was that in the 1990s? Oh, that was a while ago. I don't remember the exact date, but around that time frame, probably. Yeah, it was a um, long time ago. Yeah, I remember that. That yeah. seemed like really futuristic so, when it happened, too. But, but that was, you know, cloning is a little different than what we're talking about. I'm talking about almost like you would build a building, but building using the same building blocks, growing an organ. And it takes, it's a very different process. So this, this isn't, we're not to the point we're doing this for people or we would actually have been using it. We're not ready to use stem cells to do a lot of this. I see. Okay, next guy. I'm not going to tell you his first name. I'm only going to tell you his last name because his last name is awesome. Cornelius, uh, couldn't you just splice your own DNA and regrow a new pair of lungs? Oh, baby. So DNA is a long ways away from – how am I – okay, l- let me be re- the reasonable person that I am because my lab does – that. My, my collaborators do this all the time. And I turn to them and they'll give me a question. I look at them and say, okay, we still are going to need to develop equipment that would support that. Um, Splicing DNA doesn't mean it's a cell. So even if we could, and we do have capability to alter DNA, but you don't really need to alter the DNA. You'd need to have a find a way to take a cell or a stem cell to accept the, the, the genetic information you'd want it to become a lung. And by the way, there are 40 something different kinds of cells in a lung so you're not talking about one cell type, it's not going to be an easy fix to do it that way. So although we're good at manipulating DNA, not to the point where I could actually take a single cell, give it the genetic information I need and say, go out there and grow what I want. And by the way, stop growing when I say and be um, controlled enough that you produce an organ and not a cancer, that you produce the organ I need in a time frame I need it in. 
It's going to take a lot more than 30 days to do that project. If only science was as easy as Facebook commenting, right? That would be the that would be the the best. Oh boy, do I wish. Although I will tell you something about Facebook commenting and general public. And you said yourself that you're not a you're not a biologist and there are parts of biology that freak you out. You know what? Everybody and cuz nobody's done the work I do before, everybody's thoughts are valid. Mm-hmm. And you may have a way when you look at a process and, a, and the equipment that we're working with and you turn to me and say, hey, if you connected this pump this way, it would be better. Yeah. Your mind is as good as mine at yep. doing that. You don't have to be a scientist. Oh, I agree completely that new ideas are ve- equally valid. I do agree with that. But I disagree with people who, number one, pretend that they have a simple answer to your complex problem. I oh, think, sure. I think that that is counterintuitive. And I also disagree with people who feel that they can solve your problem but have not even read enough to understand what your problem is. Those are the two things that... True. True. I mean, and that's true of anything we do anywhere. Correct. Somebody who always is willing to comment on your life, but you're like, well, wait a minute, you're a mess. Yes. How how are how are you commenting on me? It's the same. It's the same. It's human nature. Right. That's why I, I I see I'm a mess, but I try to comment on my own life in hopes of helping other people. So that's how I <laughs> that's how I get around that whole box of rocks. But okay, the next one, I, Suzette. Suzette has clearly not read your article. I, actually, Suzette clearly has not read much because she says, "Why would I want a pig's lung?" Um, I, I understand her, um, it, and she wouldn't be getting, and I know some of, and I will agree with you, some of the people that, that took what we did and then, um, they didn't interview me directly. They just actually, um, decided that they were going to make a comment about it along the way, um, that, that took it the wrong way and didn't realize that we're not saying we're going to give somebody a pig's lungs, um, you know, that, Really take the time to at least understand what we're doing, but we wouldn't do intend some way to make a long people long for people made out of human cells. It's a but there's a stepwise process that we talked about, you know, today back and forth. Yes. So Suzette, to answer your question, you're not getting a pig's lung yeah. now. But there are there there has been in the past like pig organs or or parts of pig organs put into oh, human sure. beings. Is that correct? Um, cows and pigs, um, grafts that might be used, um, acellular pieces where we take the cells out of it and you just use a piece of, of say, uh, you know, material to, for, for surgical purposes. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's how we've learned a lot about what we need to do about even things like valve replacement, but that doesn't mean on a regular basis that we're doing this for people in terms of transplanting and organs from other animals. Although there is a group of pigs that are very expensive that have been produced that can express human proteins on the surface of their cells in a way that suggests that they're, if you grew an organ in them, you're growing a more human organ than a pig organ. And those potentially, the thought process of that is they might be able to be used for transplantation. I see. Okay, Matthew says this is a a, a, a valid and I maybe we already answered this but you can you can supply an answer he says why can we grow pig lungs but not human stuff 2016 article that um was published under my name because I'm the first author on it showing we could grow human lungs yes pediatric size but human lungs 
I see. So we can prob we can do it, but but we're not we're not comfortable. Not with ready techniques. to go into you today. Yeah. Nope. I see. Okay. Jane is very critical of you sending lungs to space, and and Jane is our last commenter that I picked out. Since taxpayers don't live in space, why not explore lung tissue on Earth instead and save taxpayers billions every year? Now, I don't know if Jane did her math on this one, but I'm not sure you spent billions of dollars to do your study. It didn't cost billions because our, our experiment had to be very lightweight and went up with a bunch of other, other research projects that were done. Um, by the way, Jane, we did do a set of those same experiments, what are called ground controls on Earth side by side with the experiment that was done on the space station. And so we did find out a lot of information that would benefit people on earth and, and wound healing and health on earth, which was critical to this project. But the other part of this is if we're going to send somebody to Mars, we need to understand how your lungs are going to function in Mars. And these organoids, uh, the way that they're grown and developed, let us learn a whole lot about the lung, about human lungs, because they were human organoids that were produced. Uh, we learned a lot about human tissues and long-term space flight that we couldn't learn any other way other than sending an astronaut for a long period of time into space. Okay. So th those were five of the most popular questions asked. Those on... are good questions. Yes. No, I agree. So some of them are, are completely valid. Uh, some of them could be improved or even answered by the person reading the work you do or, or looking into it a little better. Sure, but and I do understand that you know, when a, when an article is written, especially a scientific article, um, very often they're difficult to, to understand. Oh, they're incredibly they're written in scientific. You know, we use we use what we would normally do to talk to another scientist when we write these because the thought process is that a scientist is going to read it. Um, but I've tried with a lot of the interviews that we've done and um, you know podcasts. The reason I'm always willing to do podcasts, especially for students is that the information that we talk about is what real people want to hear. Yes. And if we talk about it in a way, we don't use big words, or if I do use a word that's a scientific terminology, I immediately come back and I may say thoracic cavity, and then I say your chest. Yes. Okay, and I immediately go to that. Um, it Just because I'm a scientist doesn't mean I can't talk to regular people. My family, are they're all regular people. They're not research scientists. I explain to them what I do all the time. Uh, my my I have some great nieces and nephews that are interested in what I do and they understand the work I do and I describe it to them in a way they get it and they're just kids and I also do a lot of outreach where I go to schools and talk about the work I do and explain to them about this research and I talk to Cub Scout groups and and you know Rotary Club groups and I tell them what I do in a way they can understand and give them a chance to ask questions yes, that's fantastic and one thing that I really but I I agree that some of the some of the public's misinterpretation of scientific research falls on the shoulders of scientists who do not do a good job of portraying what they do in the public light. I am actually we're scary people, you know yes. these these crazy scary people that lock themselves in their lab and and uh, do these bizarre experiments and you know it it I mean that. We, it's a problem that's been perpetuated by scientists that don't come out of their labs enough to talk to people and say, hey, I'm just like you. Yes. I am actually a proponent of not only writing a research article that is meant to be read by people doing the type of work you do or people in your field yep. that understand the buzzwords. 
I am a proponent of alongside that making a more user-friendly article. Essentially, I am a proponent of taking your introduction for your paper or whatever it is and making mm -hmm. it really accessible to people. In fact, even making your actual published introduction very accessible to people I think is a good idea. I do think that we do a lot of alienating and not on purpose. We just do alienating because it's easier for us to speak in acronyms. It's easier for us to speak using oh, yeah. using big words that explain a lot of details. Things. Yes. yes. Yeah. And and part of that is because if you realize for an article like the one we just published, it's eight thousand words total in the whole thing. That was cut down from a eighteen thousand word article that we wrote to, to meet an 8,000 word requirement for that journal, that means that we cut out a lot of stuff that might make it easier for you to read. And we only, and we use abbreviations because we kind of have to, to meet that word count. But I'm, you know, I'm right now, actually the, that you mentioned that I have been writing, um, uh, an article that would be for just general people to understand what this field is and what kind of things we can and can't do. Yeah. I actually get a lot of my guests, I shouldn't say a lot. I get some of my guests from Scientific American articles. I, I look at the popular articles on Scientific American or other mm -hmm. pop sci type websites and for two reasons. I like to know what people are interested in, right? If people aren't going to listen to us talk, then there's little reason yeah, for us to do the talking. Care. Yeah. And the other reason is that that people who are writing the popular articles on Scientific American are probably pretty damn good at explaining what it is that they do. Because you bet. It, and so I like to have those people explain what they do to the general public. Because at the end of the day, a lot, a lot of our resources come from the general public, right? You mentioned that you pay taxes. We'll All get, of our resources do. Yes. Your, the money that you pay in your taxes helps fund my research. Exactly. And, and that goes for every single listener or, or non-listener out there. And so it's important to get these people involved and not only get them involved, but get them caring, passionate. They don't have to be practicing. They don't have to be bioengineers, but they oh, no. they have to understand its value. And in order to convince them of its value, you can't just walk around saying acronyms and, and dusting them off your shoulder. And so in that regard, I completely agree with you. But I do. And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, what you're saying is, is a huge thing to think about it because – you know, research isn't isn't a standalone. I have to listen to what you say and what what the world is telling me and what public health issues are and how people like we talked a lot about animal use and what are the issues that there are a lot of there are a lot of things that people care about that relate to the projects that I do to just research in general. And if you don't care or if I am not presenting myself in a way that's reasonable. Um, especially because I'm, a, I'm an animal researcher, I need to make sure that I understand that the public is engaged. Yes. And that I, that I care about your comments, which is why I'm a careful scientist. I'm a careful user of animals. When I'm funded, I know where every penny goes in, in my research project. I don't waste any money. And although I may make mistakes... I also make enough, it, even in the middle of something that may be, be a failure, I learn enough to eventually figure out what I need to do for the whole project. Right. And I'm responsible that way. And so, I mean, that's part of the, that's what I have to do on my side, because by the way, my own tax dollars fund my own research. Correct. Yes, there, there needs to be, I, 
this is I wanted to add this. Your work, even though I I brought up questions that were asked that maybe hint at the fact that maybe your work costs too much money or maybe there's a simpler way to do what you do, I do want to add, and this is important, that there are tons of people out there supporting it. In those comment sections, there are tons of people saying, great work, this is fantastic. You know, uh, this would be good for me later on if I needed a lung transplant. Although you're not at that level yet, that's where we're going. And people recognize that. And I want to commend you for that. And, And I'm sure you know this already. But there are tons of people who completely support what it is that you do. Now, on my end... It's it it's much more critical on my end uh, in terms of the people that support my work because it's really easy, I think, to explain to people that we're going in the direction of getting a bioengineered lung that we can <laughs> transplant into people to keep them alive. Give us money. Give us money. We're going to eventually save lives. It's much harder to say, I'm studying black holes. I need money. It will never impact you probably ever a day yep, in your life. Directly. Uh, Now, there are aspects of what I do that do impact people, like high-performance computing, right? There are people in my field that are always working on making computers much better than they are, and that impacts people beyond beyond any comparison I can make. But So we're not that different, really. If you just let yourself go for a minute and look at it my way, and you look at what you do, although we're very different in what we do and what we study – and your research may not be as understandable because people have a hard time conceiving what a black hole is. You have to stop and realize that of all the little things I have discovered in the process of my project over all of these years has benefited in some small ways here and there technologically. And my making equipment and fostering that and coming up with procedures and eventually going to a clinical application benefits people because I'm developing technology. Your research work also develops technologies, sometimes that we don't even know or understand, like you said, high-speed computers, ways of analyzing the world around us. Like, like you talked about with the Neutrino Observatory, understanding at the smallest level how particles function. By the way, understanding how particles function, this is my favorite story. Understanding how particles function leads to understanding how molecules come together, leads to understanding how biochemically molecules function that supports development of a cell, leads to development of tissues, leads to development of whole organs, leads to development of how you function. None of this can be excised away or or studied by itself. It all is one big continuum piece that all leads to the, the bigger understanding of our whole universe Beyond an individual. Yes. And your I wanna, work is as critical as what I do. Yes. And I even want to take your analogy a little tinier. You you started tiny and went big. I want to go a I little started, tinier. You can yeah. go down to the next. Yes. Because if you take start at the lowest level, you can. If you start at the particle level, well, you, you can understand how those particles function and how they're created. Uh, but what's really important is understanding the first time they were created. Fundamentally, why were they yes. made? Why was matter here at all? Why is there why is there even space to have particles existing? And so, yes, yes from the very bottom to the very top, this is a scientific continuum. Yes. I agree with you 100. And it all fits together. And so what you may discover, at, at like I said, at that particle level and about creation of particles and how they're generated and what they do, you need to understand it. And, okay, for me, this is a scary point. I'll let you see in my brain for a minute. 
these particles and these molecules when they come together are actually, I see them in my brain and how they move. I can see chemical reactions and follow their process in my brain. Mm -hmm. I can see how a chemical reaction that leads to how we would make um, something, a protein that would be involved in oxygen transfer like hemoglobin. I see how that goes back to that particle stage and understand how that all builds together. That's why I understand what you're doing and what physics. Remember, I was physics. I was a physics major when I first started. I have an understanding of physics, and I have an understanding of chemistry. I have to because you don't do biology without understanding both. Because we're made up of things that are influenced by physics and chemistry. And yes. so, whether I, on a daily basis, read the same papers, and I may read a lot of the same ones that you do, because I'm always interested in everything that's out there and how people approach the study of any part of what this world is because that lets us understand a big, a, a little bit bigger piece over time to understand how we influence everything that happens in our environment and how we share particles and components with each other and how that may influence how you function physiologically. And so it's not just the organisms that we share in terms of microbiome. If you're sitting next to somebody in a room it comes down to, I've always been amazed if you think about how atoms work and electrons and go down a little bit level and look at particles, how we may share those at a level we've never understood, which may impact your physiology as a person. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's, that's way out there. And I'm, I'm sorry we went in that direction. No, it's no, no. Amazing. That's perfect. Yeah. But it, but it fits. And so what you do makes sense to me and fits in my brain with what, with exactly what I'm doing, you're just doing, I'm doing it on a bigger level than you are. I'm lucky I can see the stuff I work with. Okay, I need a microscope to see the cells, but I can see it in terms of when I get it to the organ level. Yes. I can't see yes. those particles you talk about, but that doesn't mean I don't know they aren't there. Yeah, and, and I love that what you're, I love what you're saying. I do. I think that there's too much vilifying that goes on in science sometimes across fields. Actually, the most vilification I've seen is when people are in the same field but working on different things. Yes. It's it's very well, funny. It's very funny yeah. that people will be like, no, why are you working on that? That's not important. What I do That's is not important. important. Have you ever been at a meeting, though? And, and here's the thing, that if, whenever you do something that's different from other people in a big way and you make a big jump, have you ever been in a meeting, had someone stand up and say, I don't believe your research? I've been at conferences where I've seen people do that to other people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have had people do that when I was at meetings that say right straight out in terms of a research project that I was presenting. Um, I don't believe your research. And when they did it, you know, I'll tell you something. It, it di I didn't understand it at first, what they were saying to me, that they didn't believe it. I'm like, what do you mean? I wrote everything's been written in this. You can reproduce what we did if you just follow the what I wrote in this article. You could reproduce this exactly. So what do you mean you don't believe what I did? You don't believe my data? I'm showing you all these bits of data. I guess in that my head when they said it, I couldn't phantom how the heck am I going to lie about this and create this? I'm showing you hard data that goes along with proof of concept. What don't you get? Um, and so that's a bad part of science and scientists. That's, and I've never done that to anyone. I may question how they did an experiment or their controls that they did for an experiment. But I've never looked at them and said in a holistic way, I don't believe what you did, which says pretty much you're a liar and you're cheating people. And I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, that's bizarre because I know people that do that quite frequently on a smaller scale where 
where they don't quite say, oh, I don't believe you, but but they sort of um, undermine, saying it they, in a different they way. undermine you or, or they, they, they poke fun in some way at the work that you're doing. Oh, sure. And it is a real problem. And I don't think it's good for science for people to be like that at all. Uh, it's, no. it's doing that is equally as bad as presenting work that is knowingly false. Rejecting work without analyzing it is equally as bad as presenting as bad work. As, yes, yeah. as presenting work that's false. And I, and I will agree with you there. I will agree with you. But I've never understood how you present something false. I've made mistakes in my calculations and my data that people have pointed out, and that's reasonable. And, that, and I thank people for that if I've made a mistake and I didn't catch it. But for what I'm doing, bottom line, there are... We actually, you know, every step of the way that what we've done, including this feasibility study, is all documented very carefully. And we have imaging of our bioengineered lungs in the animals that obviously look very different. We have histology. We have we have data sets from groups um, that, by the way, when we did this study, uh, we didn't do all the analyses ourselves. We did collaborators. So we have collaborators at Harvard and collaborators at Mass General in, in, in Boston and collaborators at at outside of our own program in this university and other universities who did pieces of this that all came together to do, do parts of it um, to feed back in a way that said, although we created these lungs, they're not exactly the same as native lungs yet. They're still in a developmental stage. You know, they're still developing and they need to mature, which is why we need to go longer when we do our next study. But it was important to have all these other people involved because they, they actually support what you're doing and say, we're not making this up. You know, this actually worked and the animals actually walked around and we took care of them and they didn't have any problems. They didn't even cough. And by the way, here's what the tissues look like at the gross level, at an electron um, microscopy level, at, you know, at every level that you can look at and how they function. I guess that's that's why you would go to having a bigger group to prove the fact that you couldn't possibly be making this up. Yes. Well... We have one thing in common, at least. It's that we're both working towards something. We're both wor- l- loving to fail. We're both learning from our, f- our failures. We're both trying to yeah. progress. We're both just trying to be good scientists. And in doing that, we're going to F up every now and again. Uh, oh, sure. Human nature is your... You, that, that's normal. And it, But it's not... You didn't do it on purpose. It was... Yes. It's a true human error, and we make an error. That's why you have not just one brain doing research. You have many to catch those errors that you may make because you're human. Yes. It is incredibly important in this field, as in many others, that you are willing to accept the inevitability of failure. You're willing to take it in stride, keep going, towards what it is that you want to achieve, whether it's studying particles, whether it's studying molecules, whether it's studying DNA or lungs or engineering, no matter what it is, you're going to fuck up. Keep going. Oh, yeah. That's the that's the bottom line. You have to just take it and keep moving forward. That's not just a lesson in science. That's a lesson in life in no matter anything yep. that you do. And every time I talk to scientists – who are at the the peak of their field like you are and like Francis Halsen was last week, there's the one common theme. And the common theme is that they've spent their entire career making mistakes. 
And the reason that they're where they are now is because they were willing to learn from those mistakes and not shy away from those mistakes. And with that yep. being said, Joan, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. We have given people a lot of information to, to soak up. Is there anything you want to plug before before we let you go? I just would like to say that um, I am from upstate New York. I went. I can't hear you right now, Joan. You've muted for some reason. Undergraduate and graduate degrees at, at SUNY Geneseo, which is near you. I did a lot of my um, early stage PhD work at University of Rochester. I mean, that's home to me, and I still go back and visit periodically. Um, I took, I've took i been to so many seminars at RIT over my time when I was studying in the past. I mean, so when one of the reasons that I, and it wasn't that I was ignoring your email, it was that I have so many emails coming in that I, and I was very carefully going through them and finally saw it, is that the reason that I bothered to stop and do this podcast for you is because you were from RIT. And, and for me, that's you were from home. And I always try to make time for students who are doing this kind of work. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm sure that the, the people listening appreciate that as well. I have looked yesterday and I have listeners from 40 states and like 15 countries. And so uh, for those of you that don't know, we're talking about Rochester, New York and upstate New York. And it's a, it's a beautiful city and it's damaging my lungs every day I'm alive because I'm <laughs> breathing in all of the horrible toxins from the far too many people that live here. And with that being said, Joan, we're out. <laughs>